don't let the non-exciting stuff slip by. Like, we all get wrapped up in the super sexy trauma injuries. Like, you got your trauma kit, you got all your blood transfusion stuff. You got, you know, IV antibiotics. You got all the awesome stuff. And one of your guys goes out and eats a falafel from a food truck or a cart and gets dysentery. Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I am Stephen P. Wood, your host for today's session. I'm a critical care and emergency medicine nurse practitioner and World Extreme Medicine Fellow, and I'm very excited to have you joining us today. Today, we're going to talk pre-mission planning, and so it's my pleasure to introduce friend and colleague, Jeremy Nesky. Jeremy is a paramedic and combat medic with over 20 years of pre-hospital medical experience. He is retired U.S. Army, where he worked as a medic and mountaineering instructor at the Army Mountain Warfare School. There, he taught basic and advanced mountaineering and rope rescue. He was also the NCOIC of the Rough Terrain Evacuation Course, the Mountain Critical Care Course, the Military Mountain Medical Course, and the Cold Weather Medicine Course. He most recently participated as an instructor with World Extreme Medicine at the Fire Department of New York's Medical Special Operations course in New York this past May, and he helped us teach rough terrain evacuation as well as participated in our simulation. So welcome, Jeremy. Steve, thanks uh, for the amazing intro, and uh, it's good to talk to you again. I'm really stoked to be talking to the, the uh, WEM crew out there, and I hope I can pass some information along from, uh, honestly, from mistakes I've made that I've learned from. And I think that's why we all do education anyways, is so we can... Uh, be slightly better than we were before. Absolutely. And, and you and I actually did a lot of pre-mission planning for that special operations course, only to find that uh, we had to, to change on the fly um, when we were told we couldn't use uh, uh, certain buildings in certain locations. Um, but, you know, you run, you roll with the punches, right? And you're going to, you're going to tell us a little bit about that. But I do think, you know, pre-mission planning, even from your most basic camping trip to you know, really, you know, integral uh, or really complicated medical missions. It's really the key. And I think, you know, yeah, that's, you know, you've got to start there. So, Jeremy, I'm going to let you launch and take have you take it from there and, and tell us a little bit about your experience and some of the things that, you know, you focus on when you're doing uh, pre, you know, pre-mission planning. Awesome. All right. I guess here we go. So, yeah, as, as I said in the intro, I taught mountaineering uh, for the U.S. Army for a long time. I've also functioned as a small team medic for a lot of different events, whether they're actual combat operations or uh, medical missions or training missions overseas. And we found ourselves doing a lot of that stuff in the early parts of the war on terror. So I was, spent a lot of time working as a medic as assigned to like a four-person team. Um, and as the medic, the medical evacuation chain and the medical pre-mission planning became my sole responsibility. Uh, the Army has stuff on this, um, and like a lot of things, I take we take the pieces we like. Um, so before we wade into the nuts and bolts of the whole thing, I just want everyone to, like, I ask some certain questions when I get a mission. So they tell me I need to go do something. I ask some simple questions. What are we doing? Where are we doing it? How many people? are we doing it on and how long are we going to be there All right so that kind of sets the rough framework of what we're going to do and then i'll wade into 
worst case scenario time, right? This is where I become uh, a Debbie Downer on this one. I tend to I'll look worst case scenario and find those realistic problems that can happen. Right? We can all wade down. Like if you spend any time in medicine, you can go down some pretty dark, twisty rabbit holes on all the terrible things that can happen to you. Um, but some of them are horrible, but very unlikely. And where I've kind of, how I've set myself up to stop doing that is I look at the, I'll take the events or the trip and I break it down into kind of three risk categories. So I have the day to day, which is everything that goes on around the training event. Cause we're not always just doing whatever we're there for. We have to go to dinner. We have to find places to sleep. We have to go to and from training. And you now there may be rest days. There's all kinds of things. So those day-to-day -day events, what are those likely to look like? And I'll break that down into what are the trauma injuries I'm likely to see, the disease issues I could potentially get. Are we likely to go someplace and get fed local food and prepared by locals? Or do we have our own cook? That kind of stuff. The other category is just those other ones that I can't fit into disease or trauma, right? Then injuries I'm likely to see or problems that are likely to come up during said event. So if I'm climbing, I can expect certain injury patterns just by the nature of what we're doing. If we're doing water rescue, we can expect certain things or whatever it may be. And I'll use that to start building my that framework. And then the final one is the global one. Those are the global threats and the global hazards in the area of operations or where we're working. So that could be malaria, civil unrest, snowstorms, disaster. What are the big pieces that I have to kind of fit into my puzzle? So I've kind of built like a rough framework in my head here. Uh, it's a good thing the camera's off because I'm waving my hands everywhere. Um, and then we start waiting into filling in that framework. So for most of this stuff that I've found is all done way far ahead of time. So pre-mission planning, right? So I get my location, I'll grab weather and weather trends for the area. So I like to go about a month ahead and a month behind because weather's very fluctuating. So I'll look at the weather a month ahead, month behind of when I'm supposed to be there. Um, the general environment, am I gonna be working? Am I gonna be working in the water, the jungle, high alpine, cave, urban, whatever that may be and find any issues with that. Wildlife. So most of this austere stuff are away from things. So there can be a lot of different types of wildlife, little creepy crawlies I want to lay eggs in you. Or like we had when I was in the Arctic on my last, my last big trip, I was the sole medic for 120 uh, Canadian soldiers on the ice. And we we're driving snowmobiles out across the tundra or the Arctic, the sea ice. And someone ripped the trash bag and was leaking garbage juice. And we had a polar bear following you. Now, granted, not a lot I can do as a paramedic if a polar bear grabs you out of your tent and drags you away, but it's good to know about those hazards and try to mitigate them where you can. Uh, security issues. This is one of the ones that for us in the military is always a big concern. That one jumps right up to the top, but some of the more civilian based stuff I've done, people tend not to think about that as much, especially if you're doing humanitarian aid. Um, always, always, always figure out those security issues. And they may not be issues, but it's very important to know, like, is it a high crime area? Are we looking at localized terrorist groups? What are those problems? And have those tucked away, because they can go from not being a problem to being all of your problems, right? So it's very important that, we, that you track that and understand it. And then I couldn't, I 
told Steve I was going to try not to do a lot of acronyms because the military is great for that, but I couldn't figure out one that wasn't too cumbersome. So in the last stuff I'll gather in the location is what's called uh, for us is DNBI, so disease non-battle injuries. So in the Army world, this is everything outside of what would happen during direct combat. So diseases, malaria, um, cholera, uh, non-battle being... Uh, twisted ankles from sports, blown back from lifting, carbon monoxide poisoning, all of those things. And I'll start to gather those up. Um, and I also add in human factors as well. So like, what's the team I'm going with? Are they uh, really experienced in this? Or are they very not? All of that will help as well. Um, some of the general information sources I've found very useful for this. So I go to the CIA Factbook webpage that tends to be the uh, a good starting point, and you can get a general overview of where you're going. And then I'll also pull the World Health Organization uh, webpage as well. I like that one for more drilled down into the medical uh, capabilities, and it's much more medical focused. There's some other open source stuff out there. You can just do Google searches. Instagram's actually becoming a little better place to find out some information depending where you're going. Uh, Travex is one that I have used. I don't know if that's open. Uh, it's not free, I don't believe. I think you have to pay. It's like a, um industrial uh, business intelligence organization, and they do have some pretty good medical uh, intel as well. And then, um, honestly, if you have a hospital, I go to um, near University of Vermont, so I go there and I'll talk to their uh, travel clinic about inoculations and that kind of stuff, right? Um then we start getting in, what is the mission again? What are the expectations of me as the medical provider for the team? Um, what are we trying to accomplish is one of the questions I keep asking over and over again. You're going to hear that one because that definitely drives what I do for medical planning. I'm going to start looking at local medical facilities. So start understanding and building that chain of evacuation. So patient gets hurt and we know that the we, we have the two links in the chain, right? We have where the patient got hurt, that's the first link. And the last link is a hospital in home country, whether it's US or Europe, right? But a really good hospital in a home country. But we have to fill the links in between on that chain. Right. And this is where I actually, again, I'm going to use a, a military one on this one. It's called the Ruck Truck Safe House Model uh, of Evacuation. So when I start planning, I look at the point of injury. What do I have on me and on my back to treat and stabilize that patient? How far do I have to move them to get them to a vehicle? How far do I have to move the vehicle to get them to a hotel? hospital, clinic, embassy, how far from whatever that is to the air asset, and can the air asset go from wherever it is to a uh, hospital in the U.S. Or, the, or Europe. So when you start looking at the entire scope of this process, it can be quite daunting. But start small and look at the beginning, right? So I always start at our patient because they're the most important. Everything after that doesn't matter, right? So start at the patient. I, do I have the equipment and the ability to stabilize our patient for our 90 percentile of injuries? Yes. Patient stabilized. Move them to my vehicle. So like this is one of those, again, falls under the pre-mission planning. 
while we're doing the planning, I'll talk to the team leader and ask, hey, do we have rental vehicles? Make sure you get one big enough to lay down a full-size American in. If you're working in a lot of the developing world, they don't have full-size pickup trucks. Right? I'm, I'm 6'4". I don't really fit in a lot of small vehicles laying down. So make sure you have a vehicle that you can put your patient in and make sure they can lay down. Have a good evac platform. When I get back to a built-up area, when I move into what we call safe house or hotel, I always start with what do the local hospitals look like? Um, most of the places I go, you probably wouldn't want to go to the local hospital, but a lot of times there's private hospitals for the, uh, the rich and the well-off. They have their own hospitals. Sometimes you can find those. Uh, ask for NGOs. NGOs a lot of times will have the line on which good hospital is, uh, is worth going to. I'll ask the embassy and I'll talk to them because most embassies will have at least a nurse. Sometimes they have higher depending where they are and they do have certain uh, medications stored ahead of time and know what those are if that's part of your plan. And my last setup is wherever our staying hotel, hostel, whatever room it is, that is always I set up as my last ditch. This is where I'm going to care for you. And I have a timeline for each one of those, right? So if we're working in Europe and someone gets hurt, I'm not too worried. That chain's super short. They get hurt. They get on airs. Uh, Air Zermatt comes in and rescues us while we're skiing because the buddy hurt his knee. He's flown to a really good hospital in Switzerland. Problem solved. Um, versus looking at training in the uh, backcountry of Central Asia, someone gets hurt climbing, and I have to move them two hours by hand to it trailhead where they get loaded in the back of a Hilux and we have to drive another three hours to our hotel where then we got to spend a night and then drive to the embassy. Then the embassy can get them on a helicopter and the helicopter can get them to a fixed wing and the fixed wing can get them home. And understand that chain of evac so you know where those rubs are. And that honestly will and should affect what you do on the mission. If you have a very high risk event and you're like, hey, I don't have the evac platform to get you back if this if this happens right so say you're you're doing medical support for someone that wants to be the only person to juggle chainsaws in some remote place and you don't have the ability to treat an injury from a poorly juggled chainsaw then you may have to do something to mitigate those risks right communicate that and understand that don't be don't be uh, dragged along just because you're there to react, but you're actually actively part of the process. <clears throat> um, so big issues. Experience with somebody juggling chainsaws. I'm hoping oh, yeah. that, uh, that's just an example. It, it's it's roughly an example, I'll say. I've <laughs> been places where they're like, hey, we want to go do this stuff. And you're like, well, that's super cool what you want to do, but it's really risky. And it's a 16-hour yak ride to a crappy Russian helicopter, to a crappy Russian plane, to get you to some place where I can help you. So maybe let's not do said thing, because if it goes bad, it's going to be like really bad for everyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and, that, and providers alike. I think you know a lot of people who do some of these extreme sports or do some of these extreme things forget that you also are putting the provider at risk when you know when you've got that but i think you bring up a really important point then i'll let you kind of take it again from there which is that you know i, I think a lot of people think about the you know what are my assets for hospitals and, and things of that nature but 
quite honestly, most of the time you're going to want, you know, um, air evacuation out of most areas. Uh, and so thinking about, you know, what's available for those kind of assets for the military, that's easy, right? It's the military. Yeah. They're going to get you the appropriate, you know, airframe to get you out of there. But for civilians, you know, you, you know, when I was doing time, you know, in Haiti, or we had planned, you know, we sent some people to Nepal during the earthquake. Um, you know, my, my part of my planning was what's my air asset to get people home if we need to, regardless, uh, you know, it, it could be an infectious process to trauma, but what are my air assets and how do we, you know, get them those, those there. And, and that's important to think about, you know, that long-term evacuation, because it's not always going to be, you know, and I'm not endorsing any particular airline, but United or Delta right. or Air France or whatever, it could be, you know, a medical evacuation. So important, yeah. very important point. The chain of evac, I think, is one of the more important ones to get missed. And honestly, everyone thinks the military has a really great one. And we do for certain spots. I'm not definitely not going to badmouth it. Like, I'm, I live in rural Vermont, and if I get hurt in my backyard, there's a pretty solid chance that's where I'm going to die um, just because of the fact that it's there's no one to come get me. Um, like Afghanistan, Iraq, some of our more developed areas, we had a really, really robust evac system. And I evac people from time of injury. So when I laid hands on them, they're on a table with a trauma team in an hour. You know, that's absolutely amazing. But some of the other stuff, we're working in Central Asia, that was one of my bigger eye-openings for this medical pre mission pre-planning because a lot of the military stuff comes from having that thing, that robust robustness. And I ran into all kinds of crazy problems with it. They're like, yeah, here's the theater mo patient movement control phone number. Call them. It's like a satellite phone number you call in Germany. And then you talk to this person and they're like, yeah, if you can get them to the airport, we'll get a, a, a plane that will come off rotator and get them. So it's not everywhere. And one of the things, actually, oddly enough, I had to evac a patient, one of my own guys, he fell while rock climbing and uh, broke his leg. And it wasn't a big break. We managed his pain, whatever. But we had a hard time on airlines because uh, they're worried about fat embolisms and having to like reroute the plane and all this other crazy stuff. So even airlines, you have to ask the airline, like if you're gonna fly a civilian airline, like what are your requirements for an injured patient to fly? Like some of them are exorbitantly expensive. Like if you have to kind of like agree to, if they have to reroute because of a complication, you buy everyone's plane ticket. So it's definitely worth digging into those pieces. If like what, what the capabilities of your evac chain is. Right. And that starts with simple stuff like that. Uh, making sure you can lay a patient down in a car. That was actually from the broken leg guy. Like we had um, really nice uh, Toyota, old Toyota Land Cruisers, like the FJ style body, like Jeep style for getting around. They were super small. We had some like Russian kind of knockoff as well, but you couldn't lay anyone down in them because they're like a small Jeep, like a CJ size. And uh, we had to, after that, I swapped one out. I got a, uh, I think it was a Land Rover uh, 110 so I could lay someone down in it if I needed to. But looking at those things being like, Hey, this is shouldn't happen. But if it does, this is how I want to follow this chain. And air evac is probably the best way to get out of a lot of these places. I know there's some like specific companies that do it and they have their own kind of, uh, 
intricacies with them. So you have to ask questions like, do you have your own aircraft? Is it leased? How far away is it actually? Because those air evac companies will say certain things, but they may actually be farther away. Like actually, what is the time from when I call to when you land? And the where can you land? Where do you take the patient? Because again, some of those travel insurance company things will only say we'll take you to a uh, hospital equivalent, whatever that means. Or some will actually say we'll take you back to a given treatment facility. So understand those as well. And one of the big ones that happened with uh, those is they can also be very well, very easily overwhelmed uh, during the um, the Everest earthquakes. Those the two companies that did a lot of the coverage there got overwhelmed uh, almost instantly with uh, people like we're just pulling the pulling the pulling the cord on on it and saying they had all kinds of injuries saying I paid this money and getting evac so it tied up a lot of helicopters without actually evacing anyone so understanding that there are limitations to all of these and then have alternative contingency and emergencies right so like we pace everything out so let's sorry Steve another acronym. Uh, we have our primary. That's what I want to use. We have our alternate. It's the one I'm okay with going with. Contingencies, like, ah, I'd rather not. Emergencies, like, I can't believe we're having to do this. And I have those for every stage of our evac. So that way, if it roll, if something goes bad, I can roll with the punches and not be too stressed out about it because I'm already having a bad day. Um, one of the other things that's, I think, real important with this is if you build a good plan, when you build a good plan, brief it to the team. Because it's real easy, especially for like extreme sports stuff, for people to get sucked into their event. But as soon as you start briefing them, like, hey, so, so the likelihood of you falling and breaking both your legs is this high. And this is what it's going to look like if we have to get you out. Right? You, you brief the entirety of the team. Are you okay with that? If you are, let's do the event. We'll do everything we can to not let you let said uh, accident happen. But I, it's important that they understand the the true consequences, not just like, oh, I'll break a leg, because we've all broken bones or gotten hurt. But that's all been in a developed country where it's like you call 911 or the European equivalent or you get driven to the hospital and it's done. And some of these more remote, austere places, that's not the case. You may be living with that broken limb or that puncture wound or that weird infection because you ate the food you shouldn't have for days or weeks to get someone out so having a, a strong understanding of, of briefing that chain of evac will also help you uh, temper the expectations of the people you are with and that kind of brings me kind of to my close out on this i'm not going to not fully yet um once you're on the ground if you can i like to drive my evac routes um I like to go to the local hospitals I'm going to use and make face-to-face -face with the doctors so I can understand their actual capabilities because what's reported on the World Health, Book, World Health page or the CIA fact book or any of those other intelligence sites may not actually be accurate. I'll go to the embassies if, I, if you have access to that and ask what they have. Like one of the big ones we were dealing with in Central Asia was rabies. Um, for our first few trips, we weren't vaccinated against rabies because we didn't have a military requirement for it yet. <clears throat> and they said the embassy had the immunoglobin to uh, to take care of that. And we were, like, climbing around. We were actually going into, like, caves and slot canyons. So there was a pretty solid chance one of us was going to get bit. And some of the guys I was with like, were dumb. 
They like to play with the wildlife, even though they shouldn't. Um, we went to the embassy and talked to them. And they actually didn't have it because the refrigerator was broken. So they also didn't have whole blood. Um, but the refrigerator was on order, so they just never reported that as a problem, right? So it's little things like that. If you're counting on it, like, oh, no worries. So this happens, I go here, they have this. And they show up like, oh, yeah, man, the fuse blew in the fridge and the new one's on order. It'll be here in a week. Doesn't really help you right now. So go talk to them, make that face-to-face -face connection. And it'll only actually speed up the process when you get there. And again, it's just to catch all that little, the little nitpicky stuff that's going to cause you problems. Like they move the, they move the entrance to the hospital to the other side of the building because of whatever reason. So you know that ahead of time. Um, meet, make that solid face-to-face -face connection, have other people go with you. So you're not the only one who knows it, right? Because let's be honest, it could be you that they're doing this on. So it, it only benefits you to make sure they know you know how to take care of you. Right. Um, and this is the one that I always get, I always got teased about is once you're out there, be the fun police. That's what I was always called, right? You become the OSHA inspector of the, of the event. Because right? the reality of it is, like I said earlier, or I want all of my stuff to expire. If I don't have to open my aid bag, if I don't have to crack open a treatment kit, I can come back and be like, oh, that expired. That is a win to me. Because right? I'm not here to do medicine. I want to try to prevent those injuries. So become a very good preventative medicine person. So sometimes that means you have to have a strong understanding of what you're doing, right? If you're not 100% on rope work or climbing, get a little better if you get a job, uh, get a get a mission like that. Or if you're not really good with water or whatever the environment or the problem is, get a better grasp of that so you can start catching those problems early because everyone cuts corners, makes small mistakes. And you know, it's those margins. Like how, many, how much margin do you have in the US or Europe? You have a pretty big margin if you make a mistake and get hurt. You start pushing out into the, the remoter parts of the world, that margin goes down. So you have to be accepting of that and try to just prevent the injury before it happens. So that's the the probably the most important part, right? Like I try to prevent injuries. And the se last the second thing is don't let the um, non exciting stuff slip by. Like we all get wrapped up in the super sexy trauma injuries. Like you got your trauma kit, and you got all your blood transfusion stuff. You got you know. IV antibiotics, you got all the awesome stuff. And one of your guys goes out and eats a falafel from a food truck or a cart and gets dysentery. <laughs> right? It's not technically really life-threatening, but boy, that really complicates things. Right? It become he becomes your problem. And that's not a real fun problem to have, right? Um, he's no longer mission capable. He can't help or do the reason he's there, right? So if you paid a bunch of money to do a thing, he's not, not, not doing the thing. He's spending most of his time in the bathroom or the equivalent of. Um, so make sure you can gather and treat those much more likely things and stay ahead of them. So fall back in the prevention. Like, hey, stay away from eating local food cart stuff. Maybe don't try the fermented horse milk liquor that the locals sell in water bottles on street corners. Or, you know, don't eat sushi in the center of a landlocked country. Those are all probably really good advice, but it should definitely be uh, reinforced and remind people because people get carried away. They want to have the experience of travel. 
they want to enjoy the culture they're in and it's not always good for us so be very cognizant of those smaller problems talk to your team i like to make sure i'm ta- on longer trips or any trip talk to the team and see how they're doing like hey what's hurting like if it's a very physical trip or you have any musculoskeletal aches can we stay ahead of it because a achy back can turn into a thrown out back really quick or hey i rolled my ankle while we're coming out of the training site let me tape that up in the morning let me take a look at it um, i got blisters let's make sure they don't get infected or whatever all of those things are we want to try to make sure we stay ahead of any of those potential problems yeah i i think you know we all want to think about we pack you know tourniquets and and all the you know those kind of things but really it's oftentimes those very small things blisters i think are a big one you mentioned them uh you know, I think blisters, people ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. And then it becomes a, it can become a real problem downstream if yeah. either it gets infected or gets so bad that those people can't walk effectively. Well, now you've really affected the mission. And to the other thing you mentioned, and I, I really harp on this too, and it does, yeah, you become the fun police when you're like, uh, you, when you keep talking about hydration and food um, and, yep. you know, making sure that people stay hydrated in making sure that they're eating food that's safe. Uh, everyone wants to try something. Um, we've all done it where we've eaten something and then you you regret it. Um, but, you know, just knowing and, and speaking to people about that and saying, look, I know it seems like tempting to want to try this, uh, but, you know, our, you know our, from a safety perspective, you know, it's just not, it's not a safe thing to do. And so, Unfortunately, those are the things that people don't want to, you know, you want to think about, oh, ocular trauma and, you know, penetrating trauma and all these tropical infectious diseases. But it's oftentimes the very, very simple things, food, water and like feet. food, water and feet is what I, uh, you know, kind of talk about all the time. And and I'm glad that you mentioned those things as well. And and that's the the biggest thing is like once you get the mission planning done, like you do all the the medical planning, you get all these numbers and things and you're like, yeah, you brief it. Everyone's really excited. You get there and you're doing whatever your thing is. And the worst times I've had have all been people like eating something or getting a cut that got infected because they're just hard patients to manage. Like someone who's having just unstoppable diarrhea for two days is an incredibly complicated patient to be managing in a tent. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like, exactly. Unpleasant for everyone. Nothing good comes of it. So it's just so much important to, to like harp on that stuff. And length of time really pays into some of those things too. Um, I don't know how good it was. It was an impressive move by one of my seniors when I was a, a junior medic on a team. On one of the teams, we got there. We were there for like six weeks. First day, he was like, "All right, guys, we got five days to hang out. We're you know meeting people, blah blah blah. We're gonna go eat some local food day one." With it, because he knew full well that most of us were gonna get sick within three or four days. We'd be able to treat it, and it would be fine. Like, I, it, and that's what happened. And we were all done with local food after that point. I don't know if that was the best move. I I appreciated it. Um. And it did satiated the problem, but he was kind of on the old school side of things. But um, yeah, like gathering that stuff and just understanding it. Like I have a really good friend. She's a mountain guide. She does a lot of guiding in Nepal. 
and that's what she tell we talk about this all the time and she talks about like the most uh dangerous part of any expedition for her is getting people through Kathmandu without them getting sick it's nothing to do with going up on everest or any of the other nepalese high peaks she's like she is most concerned with just making sure she can take her team and get them through Kathmandu without getting sick because that will end your trip <laughs> yeah, yeah before you even get started absolutely and yeah. i, I Thing I've read, I, you know, I, I've never been to Everest myself. Um, I'm not honestly even sure that it's something on my bucket list necessarily. But all the books that I've read or all the movies that I've seen, everyone gets sick in Kathmandu. So, and everyone's getting diarrhea and vomiting. And that, you know, that yeah. you're off to a bad start. You're off to a bad yeah. start. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest ones I've always had to deal with. Like, I was in Afghanistan, even doing like for real a preventative medicine. Like I was never trained in it. I learned on, I learned OJT, which is probably the worst way to learn preventative medicine. Um, but I ended up having to do it cause I was the senior guy and that was my thing. It was just ma- watching people all the time. Like, where's the water come from? Like we forget that stuff. Like I can turn my tap on and the water isn't going to hurt me. Not always the case. A lot of places. So understand where you're getting, your team's getting your water. So you may be staying in a nice hotel, but um, find out if they treat their water. We were, I was working in Tajikistan. No, I'm sorry, Kyrgyzstan. And there was like a Hyatt or one of those really high end hotels they put us up in and they had a UV water treatment system or that was advertised that they had one. I went and asked and it was broken. Like most things are in a developing world. Um, so we didn't drink the water coming out of the tap, even though they like, Oh yeah, it works. Do it. Like just ask those questions. And just to try to keep that team healthy and understand that those are the things, the prevention is really where you win. And that's how you know you had a good plan. If you come back, as I said earlier, and you just take your aid bag and it was never opened except for like the, the top little flap where you have like your sick call meds, like you gave up some Benadryl and whatever, that's a total win for me anyways, is I really want to make sure I, I capture those and prevent them. And I've had the best luck in the high-risk stuff, again, is building that plan and then communicating it very clearly to people. You know, we, like, that is so cool. You want to be the first guy to jump a mountain bike across this thing, right? Not a real thing. I'm making it up. But explain, like, hey, if you miss the landing or get hurt in any way, I don't know how. I don't know all the mechanics of it. But if you break something or need to be evac this is the process. We're going to carry you four hours down the mountain. Then you can get put in this rusty Russian pickup truck or whatever, driven for another six hours. And then we're going to get you to a, get to the hotel where you're going to hang out in my hotel room while I monitor you because none of the hospitals are open or taking Americans or we can't bring you. And then we're going to load you on some cargo plane and fly you to Europe for about 16 hours. Are you okay with that? And sometimes they'll be like, yeah, that sounds awful. Like, yeah, so let's, let's figure out a safer way. So if we communicate that, the, the, the risk, and you don't sugarcoat it, um, it will definitely help the participants understand what's at stake and people will be safer. Like if it's a lot of times um, leaving our bubble of the, devel- of, uh, you know, the developed world, the U.S. or whatever, we have an idea of things are, that are things are always as safe as they are around us all the time, and that falls off pretty quick. And just having people understand that, that things aren't as safe as they are, like 
it will help so much in keeping people safe on it. You mentioned, uh, you, meant, you mentioned communicating, you know, to the team. Can you talk a little bit about what you think about for your pre-mission planning, just with regards to communication? Um, you know, I think a lot of people oh, rely on cell phones and, you know, we, we use our cell phone. I mean, I was just in South Africa and my cell phone worked just as well as it does, you know, where I live in Boston. But, you know, that's yeah. not always the case. So what, what's your kind of thoughts on, you know, communi communications and planning for those kind of things? And Steve, I'm really glad you're here because actually I was just, you brought that up. So I was looking at my notes and I, I had actually missed over the commo section. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So having a commo plan and um, that can be cell phones, you know, in-reach devices, radios, internet, data transfers. It all depends. And the hardest part with especially cell, any comms is it will never work. That is kind of how I base most of my comms. Like I count on my comms working if I'm if if I am doing okay fifty percent of the time, right? Um, so have a contingency for those things, and understand that sometimes when you're out there, there will be no reaching back. Like you may have a sat phone, but you may only have a limited number of satellites because of the amount of sky you can see or your location on the globe. You may have a cell phone that works most of the time. Um, but don't treat one, have backup. So have a sat phone and have a cell phone that's a separate entity. I know some of the new Iridium phones are like a cell phone and sat phone. What happens if you drop it or you break it or the battery dies? Have separate entities. So like we build our primary alternate contingent emergency planning process off of that same thing. They have to be separate entities, right? So like if my plan is to use my cell phone and I don't have the phone numbers written down and it breaks uh how do i reach out like can most people don't remember phone numbers anymore right so i'll make a laminated card with the people i need to talk to and i'll only give one to everyone on the team because i lose things so i know if i make 16 of them give one to six uh, every member of the team at least one of them should show up when i need it but i'll have the phone numbers for the embassy for our driver for our evac chain for the people back here, and I'll have all that written down. So if I just have to use another phone, um, I think the cell phone coverage is getting better, but it's still not a hundred percent. The in-reach devices, uh, the, I think Spot still makes them as well. That's a satellite communicator. They work relatively well, but it's text communication only, and it's more of a reach out to tell people you're hurt. And they do have some limitations on them as well. They may not be as accurate if you haven't tested it that kind of stuff um sat phones i've had good luck with and i've had bad luck with kind of the same processes um so traditionally when i traveled now is i'll take i have an in-reach device i have my cell phone when i was traveling for uh, the army we'd also take a sat phone with us and then if we were in the right environment we'd have uh like satellite radio communications but we'd always have those three devices for reaching out and then we'd have internal uh, comms as well. And we actually used a lot of the, uh, what is it, GMRS radios, the push to talk ones, the little cheap ones. And those tended to work good for internal communication so you can talk from vehicle to vehicle. Um, but one of the new things that I've been really um, lucky and I'm looking forward to learning more about is have a uh, reach back capacity for medical consults. So I have a telemed ability. If that's 
just you calling on a phone and talking to someone else, that's great. If you can send pictures, emails, that kind of thing, and start understanding that process. And again, the biggest issue with all these is that connectivity. So um, when you get your whatever your kit is, really wade into it and say, like, hey, how many satellites does this need to see? Is it going to work on the section of the globe I'm going to? And sometimes they won't tell you. You have to talk to the manufacturer and you get into the kind of the commo nerd world of things. But understand those, the limitations of it and have multiples and multiple ways to reach back. And, you know, and also have a plan that if you can't talk to anyone until you show up uh, is not a bad thing to have because that can happen and does. I mean, I'm not a super combo guy. I do try to build a little bit into it, but that's kind of where I've gone with it. So I always take a cell phone, in-reach device, and I don't have a sat phone anymore because I can't. I'm not going to buy one. But I would I would take a sat phone as well uh, if I was traveling for work. And those three will normally cover most of what I need. But I do fully expect them not to work when I need them to. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and I. I mean, my wife makes fun of me when I even we go on a regular trip and I'm writing people's phone numbers down on paper. Um, but uh, and I actually I had a, another podcast that I did with a, a longtime friend, Rich Garner, who is, a, you know, um, from the U.S. Navy. He does the same thing. You do the same thing. We all share that in common, which is like have backups to backups to backups because, uh, you you know, things fail and you, you're going to. Yeah. And that. like. The most I think the biggest thing. one, yeah. yeah, it's the basic one is writing that stuff down because I've actually used locals' phones. Like, yeah. hey, you, slip them a, you slip them 20 bucks, they'll let you use your phone. And their right. phones always work everywhere for some reason, right. right? Like your driver's phone always works, but yours doesn't. So whatever. Right. And like, right. If you break your phone because you went for a swim or you kneeled on it, and you're like, yeah, I've been, I had my entire plan stored safely on my notes and my Apple phone. You're like, no, I can't get to any of that now. So right. I'm a big believer in written down on waterproof paper, stored someplace. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Just to Great protect. advice. Great advice. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, we're running um, up on our time, um, but I think this is invaluable information for people that, you know, are doing anything from uh, a small trip with friends and colleagues to planning you know, long-term medical missions, you know, be it for, like you said, um, some, you know, some uh, chainsaw juggling to uh, humanitarian work uh, to responding to disasters. These are just really important things to think about. Um, we could certainly, and we hopefully, maybe we will do part two uh, to continue this conversation because, you know, yeah. we scratch the surface, but there's, there's so much more, but that's a real, real good start for people to think about and even just thinking about pre-mission planning a lot of people don't even do that so just yeah you know that that alone i think is is just a good start so again thank you uh for joining us today i'm certainly looking forward to uh to seeing you again and doing some work with you it was quite a bit of fun when we were out in new york and even there we had uh yep. some injuries we had a, a radial head fracture some diarrhea some sunburns yeah. And I think yeah. the most common thing was every morning, a lot of people waking up with nausea, but I'm not sure what that was from. Must have been. Yeah, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of odd food being eaten. Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. I think that's exactly what it was. So thanks again uh, for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and, and thank you to our listeners. Uh, we look forward to hearing uh, more from you, Jeremy, uh, in volume two. And thank you to our listeners uh, for listening today. Awesome. Thanks, guys. If you've enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast, please subscribe, like and share. And if you want to meet lots of other risk taking, rule bending and inspirational people, then you need to be in Edinburgh on the 19th to the 21st of November for this year's conference. Tickets are on sale now. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more.